You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Martin, in our uh, investigation into the highest performing culture in organization, one of the more surprising elements was that learning culture, as we know, is, you know, has to be a very well supported sort of tenant of a high performing culture. But the fuel behind a learning culture is the energy and the energy comes, believe it or not, with a sense of enjoyment and fun. Um, I was very surprised to find that I sort of felt like it was a no nonsense, serious business to get high performance on the rails. But the reality from our studies is that fun is actually central enjoyment. People learn better when they're enjoying themselves. Enjoyment looks like a variety of different things for different people. But how what an interesting finding. I think it's a, an interesting insight into this particular podcast topic. Well, I think it's a huge point, Carl. I mean, you know, when we were at the UA conference a couple of weeks ago and then Mary, Mary O'Kane and her accords, she's talked herself about the fact that the sector is made up of so many innovative people. But sometimes the way that we deal with innovation in the sector is not very, not very creative and not always great fun in that... Um, Innovation can come from so many different places in our universities, but we need leaders and we need to create places and spaces where that learning and innovation can be fun. That that focus and that increased dynamic and richness in the gene pool can come from having customers, whether they're students or industry employ employers or industry partners, giving their different spin on and their different perspective on and their different articulation of what they're looking for. And the fun can really come from bringing those things together with the, the capacity that we have in universities. So I agree. I, I, I think this push in the accord at the moment for big ideas and bold ventures is causing us to think differently about what we do in innovation within our universities and making us think much more carefully about the connections and partnerships and trust that we build with customers and partner organisations to make that fun. And we'll hear from our guest today, Professor Karon Beaton-Wells of Melbourne Business School, just after the short message from our sponsor. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo, and more. Find the Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest on HEDEX is Professor Karan Beaton Wells. Karan has been the Dean Internal at the Melbourne Business School for more than three years now, and a professor at Melbourne University before that for, for close to two decades with a prior role in its law school. She's committed to the role of education and research for a sustainable future. And hallmarks of her approaches to leadership are clarity of vision, having shared purpose and values, and the empowerment of people in pursuing excellence. Karan has a track record in leading change with a focus on digital transformation and innovation, which makes her such an interesting guest for us today on podcast. She hosted her own podcast for five years called Competition Law, L-O-R-E. Karan, welcome. Well, thank you, Martin. I'm delighted to be with you and with your listeners. 
and um, we're delighted to have you um, and delighted to reflect with you on a very interesting journey into the role that you now have because you started as a solicitor and were a member of the of the Victorian Bar. You you that overlapped with you becoming a professor of law, and now you're leading change and innovation in Australia's leading independent business school. I wonder if you can help us just by way of introduction to understand how you came to be in this role and how does that journey that you've taken leave you, in your view, well-placed for the current challenges and priorities that lie ahead? As you said, I started out in legal practice and I had almost a decade as a barrister. And that experience at the bar in particular, I think, just reinforced that I've got a bit of an appetite for being in situations that that are... um, ambiguous or uncomfortable. So when I was a barrister, I worked largely on um, thorny cases in the area of refugees and also the Stolen Generations case. Uh, And for those of your listeners who recall that period in Australia in the 1990s, um, it did mean that I was really at the thick of things that were a bit socially and politically controversial. But then when I made the transition into academia, Martin, um, I realised that gave me an opportunity to to think and to advocate uh, independently and in a public-spirited way on on the issues uh, that really matter. You mentioned my move to the law school at the University of Melbourne. That really gave me the opportunity for the first time to try my hand at leadership uh, and to have an impact at an institutional level. And probably the standout leadership opportunity for me there was um, the opportunity that presented to lead the development of the law school's first, uh, what really became a world first, wholly online master's program in competition policy and law. And then, as you said, I made the move to Melbourne Business School in 2020. It turned out to be just three weeks before the pandemic broke. Um, I'd had a long connection with the school through both my parents having taught there and my sister being an alum. I knew it was a very special place. Um, But again, here was an opportunity, Martin, to step up and lead. Fascinating story, Karan, and um, a special place with um, an interesting history, as you've described, but also unusual and distinct as a form of entity in the Australian higher education sector, as I understand it, with, with its own models of ownership and governance, and a relationship with the University of Melbourne, from which it is distinct, that, that's interesting From interesting to me from the point of view of transformation and innovation. We might delve into that a little bit further. But to start off with, can you explain the MBS contact, context to us, as I've introduced it, and what its relationship is with the University of Melbourne? Melbourne Business School certainly is distinctive in the Australian higher education business school landscape in that... It's an independent entity, albeit one that's closely affiliated to and it's deeply embedded in the University of Melbourne. So in terms of legal structure, Martin, it's a company limited by guarantee, uh, which means it doesn't have shareholders, uh, but it has voting rights. And 55% of those are vested in its members, the members of the company, a group of companies and individuals who were traditionally associated with this establishment. And 45% of voting rights lie with the university. It's got a fiduciary board, uh, of which 
four directors are University of Melbourne representatives, including the Vice-Chancellor, who you've had on your podcast, uh, and the balance of our directors are mostly current or former business leaders. So what does that all mean for its distinctiveness? It means that the school has a corporate form, but with an academic mission, and that means it's it's truly an entity that you could see as straddling town and gown. Um, and if I might elaborate on that just briefly in terms of what that practically means, um, I think it's really interesting to look back at the origins of and the rationale for such an arrangement, because while it it may be unusual in the Australian context, it's not out of kilter with international models, particularly in the US, where it's not uncommon to have business schools that have a degree of autonomy, independence, even in their governance and in their operations. And in my view, and the view of um, uh, many here associated with the school, is that these arrangements really reflect the need and the opportunity for business schools to be deeply connected with industry, but while capturing the best of what academia has to offer in the rigour of its research and evidence-based business education. So it's really about blending the best of both worlds and I can imagine that was a very dynamic environment. And I can only assume that having such a strong industry-led governance arrangement and engagement in your continuing operations now must give you a very strong steer in, in what the market wants you to teach. But I presume also in how the market wants you to engage with and facilitate learning. Is, is Are you continuing to get a very strong steer from your industry origins and your industry leadership in the activities and expectations of the MBS? I can't help but observe that you use the word market there. Um, sometimes the word customers is thrown into these conversations. And I think we both know there's a degree of sensitivity to that type of terminology in the university world. But at Melbourne Business School, we do actually see our students, our learners and our clients as our customers um, and we do make it our business. In fact, it is our business financially to be um, continually monitoring what our customers need, what what's changing in terms of their interests. And, and in fact, as we'll talk about today, um, trying to actually stay out ahead of the market to ensure we're really at the cutting edge of developments and learning and and education, which as you know more than anyone, um, is is fast changing. So when we developed or, or reset our strategy for the school back in 2020, we had that buzzword, customer centricity, as a key element of it. Um, and it's it's really salient for us, Martin, because we are, in the way I described earlier, really at the heart of an ecosystem of business, um, of leaders across sectors, um, of industry generally. And we like to see ourselves as a as a trusted partner in how we facilitate and enrich our students and our clients' success. So yes, we keep close through that ecosystem to the broader landscape of learning and development. And we are really committed to ensuring that the products, uh, programs, uh, are developed based on market insights that we test against the market all the time, we pilot. And that's, um, I'm sure you might appreciate, a world away from at least the traditional 
characteristic of universities who tend to build it and hope they'll come. Don't they just? And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And um, and sometimes they come and like what they came for and and, and at other times they feel challenged by it. And I, I can only imagine with that lovely description of how you've interacted with your partners, with your owners, with your markets, that you, you refer to them as buzzwords, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of us would come to see them as just good principles of operating in a current environment. And I imagine the buzzword, if if we like, but for me, a, a key principle for the future is this one of innovation. And you, you've established a, a learning innovation function at the Melbourne Business School, which in itself is unusual for the sector by virtue of the ambition of its innovation goals. Can you tell us what that's all about? I'd be delighted, Martin. Learning innovation at Melbourne Business School is a new function, was only set up in 2022, uh, but it was a flagship element of a new operating model and structure at the school. I think the, the easiest way to describe this is that it's a function that we see as responsible both for uh, incremental or sustaining innovations, uh, but also, importantly, for disruptive innovations um, in the products and services that we offer. Really significantly, I think, Martin, uh, is the fact that this is a function led by a Chief Learning Innovation Officer. Now, there are some counterparts to that role in, in other institutions, academic institutions around the world, but they're not many. And you've got the concept of a learning innovation lab in there, Karam. What, what What is one of those and what's it set up to do and where are you up to in implementing it uh, across the MBS? The innovation lab uh, is something that we see as a catalyzing vehicle to bring together you might think of them as trailblazers or unorthodox and pioneering people from within the school, and there are a number of those, but also from that ecosystem that I was describing to you before, and, and really bring them together to grapple with and, and potentially solve some of the biggest learning problems that we know um, exist in the workforce and the economy today. And through solving those problems, to disrupt ourselves as a school, really, our whole business model, our offering, our, our service delivery, um, so that you know we are part of and, and if not leading the the sectoral disruptions that we are know we know are are taking place. And I know as a subject of your wonderful book, the new learning economy that I've so benefited uh, from reading. Um, it's but it's part of a bigger picture, essentially, Martin. Um, in, in terms of the the what, what the lab will do, the early ve vehicle of it will be an incubator that will be launched this year. The incubator itself won't launch innovations into the market, but it will be the first step whereby we position the market, the lab, to design and to build and possibly even commercialise new ventures and propositions uh, in the market. Um, and as I said, we'll do that as part of our ecosystem, but really looking to uh, partner with the edtechs, the startups, the other disruptors 
large and small, that we know are already out there in the learning development space. Fascinating. And um, I'm, I'm trying to sort of reconcile in my own mind, from my own career and different elements of it, the conflicts and the, the tensions that I can only assume exist with somebody that's had such a long, such a substantial and significant period being part of the professoriate of the University of Melbourne and and now is leading such ambitious aspirations for a learning innovation lab as a dean internal. I, I assume that there are ambitions and aspirations to be balanced there between the conventions and culture of the academic heartland of the MBS and this visionary leadership. And how, how do those tensions play out? How do you manage them and get outcomes that will be expected both by your board, but also your fellow academics and leaders? Are there some stories there? There's certainly challenges in really achieving the right balance between managing those tensions you've referred to between really what are quite distinct subcultures. And and let me say, we're just at the start of that journey. Uh, how do they play out? Well, um, today, largely as, as a bit of a contest for control in the governance of online degree programs and, and an online MBA, which will be launching later this year in particular. And that's a situation that's no dif- different to I think the challenges that any academic institution going online has had to and probably always will face, you know, their questions that relate to governance, what structure, what decision rights are going to apply in designing and delivering an academic award program. The way in which uh, those questions were framed when we had this conversation within the school only recently was, are we making trade-offs between commerciality, agility, responsiveness or customer centricity on the one hand and academic rigour, selectivity and even the student experience on the other. And and where I sit on that question, Martin, is I actually think the trade-offs are more perceived than actual. Mm. I mean, it doesn't mean that they don't create internal friction. They sure do. But I see my role as applying the art, and that's what it is, an art of trying to ensure the friction stays on the side of healthy, because not all tensions in organisations are necessarily unhealthy ones, and they're inevitable, but they can be healthy when you see it as bringing together different sets of expertise, different worldviews, different perspectives, different experiences. Practically, how we sought to do that, bring those differences together, was to create a governance model for the online MBA that expressly involves a collaborative partnership between the learning innovation team on the one hand and our faculty, our academics on the other, because they do bring each their own strengths, but the strengths are complementary. And I believe that the success of our online aspirations requires us to have both. Um, I, I can't help but being triggered to think about this relationship between MBS and the University of Melbourne and the extent to which, so, so you have to forgive me being an engineer resorting to this um, description, but it feels a bit like the MBS learning innovation function has the potential to be like a, 
a skunk works of fertile innovation that would have the potential to drive innovation in the wider university it's related to. Now, I might be completely you know, naive here, but do you see the relationship as being like that? Does the university have that same vision? And are any steps being put in place to optimise the synergy between those two perspectives? Well, I love that you use the word skunk works, Martin, because that indeed was the very word I used um, when I was describing the vision for learning innovation to our board. Um, and it was a word that resonated with it as well. But to your question, I think there is tremendous potential for synergies between the school and the broader uh, university in our <clears throat> respective but really aligned online ambitions and in educational innovation more generally. And again, it's a story of complementarity because the university brings scale it brings resources and multidisciplinarity. Um, and we as a smaller standalone and independent uh, but embedded entity bring what I hope is agility in our decision-making and our execution, um, an understanding of and a closeness to industry uh, that I talked about earlier, and, and a structure and a governance, which means we can move quicker, we can experiment more, and we can fail faster, which, as we all know, is just integral to, to innovation. And the only other thing I'd say about that um, is that, you know, the university occupies an even vaster ecosystem than the one to which I've referred, of which Melbourne Business School is part. You only have to think about Melbourne Connect, um, the, that incredible digital innovation precinct that the university has created in, in partnership with industry to understand how, how the school not just fits within but benefits from its relationship with this much bigger um, and prestigious institution. I think one of the concepts that I sense that we share is the importance of having and setting a very clear purpose for an academic organisation and then aligning strategy, culture, and activities with that purpose. We haven't said it much so far, but I'd be really interested in our listeners getting a better understanding of what you believe the purpose is that is driving you personally and MBS as an organization in what it's doing in learning innovation and its educational offerings and, and how that purpose drives the culture you are creating and leading and the agenda that you're setting for learning innovation across the function and within the lab. You, you know, you've hit a sweet spot for me because um, my own purpose um, and agenda is very much aligned with, with um, the purpose that we've defined for Melbourne Business School. Um, there was a reformulation of our purpose back in 2020 when I joined the school uh, to really help mostly for us internally to fasten on um, what we often call our North Star, you know, the, the thing that guides us in our decision-making um, and is really a bulwark um, in tough times when you have to make difficult decisions and the tendency in those type of times, we were then in a period of COVID, as you'd appreciate, the tendency to make um, short-term, even knee-jerk 
decisions that can have long-term harm or, or damage for, for the institution and its identity. So we went through this process of rethinking, but really just recrafting, hopefully with some poetry, um, what our purpose is. That is, what is our reason for existing? Because we all know what organisations do, but as if not more important is why um, you do them. So the end product of that um, reformulative process was a purpose of unleashing ideas and leaders for a sustainable future. And I think the critical element there for me personally and for the school is the element of a sustainable future. Just hearing you talk about that purpose and the culture and keeping people and recruiting the right people, you've got an excellent video for your Learning Innovation Lab describing its activities, and it ends with a message about the inherent uncertainty of such ventures, which you've talked about here today, and the need to explore them with purpose. And you, at the end of that video, beautifully described that uncertainty as being the fun of it all. I wonder um, if you can tell us, is this fun? Does it need to be fun? And will we all have more fun if we live with the uncertainty and ambiguity of current change in the sector while being prepared to have a go, do you think? Well, Martin, when we first started talking, I, I mentioned I have a bit of an appetite um, for for um, ambiguous, uncertain or, or uncomfortable situations but look i i don't want to understate or discount for any leader uh, including myself the challenges of of leading and being part of change you know significant change for an organization um the way i cope with that personally is that um i'm just a really firm believer in not taking myself or ourselves too seriously martin because life's too short for that um, and if you're not having fun, if you're not getting out of bed in the morning and thinking, um, I'm going to have fun today, well, um, there's something wrong and, and one should be rethinking what one's doing. Look, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation today. And I, I wish you and all of your colleagues at Melbourne Business School every success in the bold steps you're taking to pursue big ideas and, and allow them to make a difference for a sustainable future for your students, for your customers, for your markets and for your partners. And for joining us on HeadX today and being such a fabulous guest, thank you so much, Karan. Oh, thank you, Martin. It has been a great pleasure. And the Melbourne Business School is delighted uh, to be part of the, the HeadX mission um, and to be becoming a member. So thank you. It's been a great opportunity. Thank you so much for being our members and being on that journey together of changing higher education for good. We're delighted to be working with you. Well, there you go, Carl. That's Karan Beaton-Wells. How are you enjoying working with Melbourne Business School as a member of HeadX, Carl? So, so let's remember that I come at this from a, a commercial background, not a academic background. Uh, and some of the things that I hear and I heard Karan say, and also the experience that I've had, a little bit foreign to me. So I know that there is, and Karen talked about this in the uh, in her interview, that there's some sensitivity around words like uh, customer and the sensitivity around words like brand uh, and things like that. Personally, I find that incredibly arrogant. 
um, for the university sector to have a view like that. The reality is we are moving into a much more truly customer-centric market-focused environment where the sector's competitors are not sensitive or to, above considering their students to be customers. Um, so I think there's a, it's a really it's really interesting that she says, look, we do talk about them as customers. You know, we talk about them as we talk about the market. Um, this is the sort of language that is going to have a much better reaction to industry. These are the sorts of things that we're going to help knock over those barriers between innovation and actually productivity in industry. So I, I really enjoyed the relationship with Melbourne Business School. I like the fact that uh, they are contemporary. They are looking to the future. They're very innovative. They're looking to partner with a variety of partners, us being one of them. You know, they're very active in wanting to be part of the HEDEX mission for changing higher education for good. These are all the signs of progress. And obviously, as a commentator of the sector and coming into it very naive, I'm constantly astounded at how protective a lot of the sector is and how arrogant they are in thinking that they've got all the answers when the answers don't come from groupthink or inside their, their sandstone walls. The answers come from actually opening up and actually having conversation with us, industry, uh, other other universities, this idea that they need to compete against one another, it's a dated concept. We really need to see much greater collaboration. MBS are brilliant in that field. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, do tend to agree with you there very much, Carl. Um, and the focus um, of someone, you know, I, I, I probed at this with my interview with Karan, because Karan has come from a very highly respected and, and traditional often and conservative professional background. She's come through the ranks as a professor of law at Melbourne University, the University of Melbourne, one of our highest respected and longest established universities. But she's come into this role of, of a dean internal in the business school, the separate entity of the business school, with a real focus on innovation, a real focus on listening to students, listening to the market. And I think there's a really strong metaphor there for this accord as a whole, in that um, my sense of, of why the minister has set up the accord and my sense of what Mary O'Kane is looking for in big, bold ideas is not the sector working out how to best to, to share the spoils among itself, but how we can provide for what Australia needs. She framed it like that in, in the University of Australia launch some weeks ago. How can we understand what Australia needs and what the university system is that, that we need to provide for that? And I think Caron's approach and the MBS approach of piloting and testing against the market at all of the times, being mindful of long-term market needs, being market-facing, customer-facing in the experiments that they're undertaking. I think it's absolutely right for us in HEDEX to be looking at people like Melbourne Business School, working mm. with them in Australia, but also the conversations we've been having with innovators in the US and globally who are taking the same approach. We've mm. got a great opportunity in HEDEX to step outside the normal worldview of innovation in our sector and shine a light on different examples that can generate those big, bold and brave ideas. That's a great introduction really to where we're heading with HEDEX in interviewing international guests and getting their take on the accord. And have they gone through similar reviews and what's the output been and what's the result and action? So I feel like we're in a really great space to help, which is obviously what HEDEX is all about. We'll find as many valuable insights as we can and share them as, as prolifically as possible. 
and sharing them on a modern and contemporary platform like this open to everybody it was um it's great to do it um modeling the behavior of what the perhaps the sectors changes in themselves will be i um, mean that's certainly what i'm interested in from a commercial perspective i'd love to unlock some of the subject matter expertise and intellectual capital that exists in the sector because i know the i know industry and the commercial world will really benefit from that there's a, a bold idea and a big idea for the the path ahead carl and i'm I look forward to many more like that coming out of events like the ones that we held at Melbourne just recently, like our interaction with innovators like Karan and her colleagues at Melbourne Business School, and like the light that will be shining on global innovators, both in the sector and from other industries in the, the weeks and months ahead. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.